0: In one form or another, comic books have been around for at least a hundred years. And, um, you know, a few years ago I preached and I had images of fruit on the screen and everybody gave me tomatoes. So, if you have any of these comic books, they're dangerous and you should give them to a professional like me. (laughs) I will help you. The uh, comic books have always been a pictorial summary of our culture uh, whenever they came out, during the time they came out. For example, they came on strong in the 1930s and 1940s during the Depression and World War II because they simplified the conflict between good and evil, and they delivered hope and they depicted real heroes during a time when our culture needed heroism and hope. And about 60 years ago, 1954, the uh, the Senate and our culture decided that, that comics were contributing to corruption in society. And it left the industry thinking that there was no more money to be had and that the industry, the comic book industry, would probably have to fold up and there was no, there was no money in comic book heroes anymore. And now here we are in 2015 and comic book characters and comic book movies are making millions and it's the Senate that's corrupt. And so... More corrupt than any kid that ever read a comic book. Um, I remember Christmas 1975. That's when I got my first comic books. And there they are. That's, and from that point on, all literature I viewed through the lens of a comic book. I was a geek and a nerd before it was cool to be a geek and a nerd. Which actually, you can't be cool if you're a geek and a nerd. So I don't understand what's going on today. People years ago told me that if I kept reading comic books, it would rot my brain. So now you know the reason why. And I should have listened. The, um, because of that, I have to confess this too. You need to know this. I see the world through that lens. And so later on in in my youth, as I was hearing Bible stories, sometimes they would come through the lens of four-color process and line drawings and comic book panels. Especially a book like the book of Judges. And I'm just going to throw it out there and tell you, I mean, this is the way I'm doing the sermons like I've never done it before. That this is how I tend to, to, to see judges. And by the way, I'm not the first one to do this with biblical stories. It may be that comic books look a lot like biblical heroes because a lot of the creators of the major heroes like Superman in the 1930s were 17 and 18 year old young men. There were some young women who worked in comics in those days. And some of them were from a Jewish background, and they channeled the biblical stories. And Superman is found in a rocket from Krypton, and Moses is found in a river in a basket. That's not a coincidence. Yeah, that's what makes sense to me, and I don't know if it will make sense to you, but I'm going to invite us to study the book of Judges together, because Judges is like a comic book in some ways. This is how I see Judges. It's like a comic book in some ways because just like comics, when we grow up, we think that we have to put childish things away. And even though we may have these collectibles and even though we may enjoy reading them, we think, well, as an adult, you're not supposed to tell anyone that. And yet here's the book of Judges tucked away on a lower shelf in the Old Testament. And the fact of the matter is, to be honest, we're kind of embarrassed by it. We don't know what to do with it. Oh, I know, we praise the Bible, we're, we're happy for the Bible, we say that all Scripture's inspired, but honestly, when's the last time you got in-depth into Judges? When's the last time you had a conversation with someone about Judges? We need to admit that there are some problems with Judges, because if not, Judges will judge us. It's tucked away on that lower shelf there in that place where Joshua judges Ruth. Just go look at it. It's right there between those two. We like Joshua. We like Ruth. But judges, that's hard. We're not sure what to do with that. We aren't sure what to make of it with our enlightened taste and our our modern scientific sensibilities. I mean, can one man really kill 600 people with a stick? What are we supposed to do with that information? Sometimes judges is embarrassing. Women are treated horribly. Men behave poorly. Even the heroes are way too flawed. I mean, this goes beyond Abraham lying about his wife. They do stuff that's quite outrageous. We can't use judges in Sunday school, uh, uh, you know, like you can with other Old Testament stuff. No, and the ark is fine. We can hide some of the bad stuff. The story of the plagues is exciting, and we can overlook some of the more disastrous effects of it all. But how do you explain judges to kids? No, Delilah isn't a hairdresser. That's not why she's cutting his hair. No, a concubine is not farm equipment. Well, in, in some places it may be. The, um, what is the spiritual significance of honey being found in a lion's carcass? I don't know. Does God really want Jephthah to kill his daughter? You see, there's some tough material in Judges, and there's material in Judges that's not suitable for children. Judges defies our sensibilities, and I believe that it's precisely because it is so raw and untamed that Judges still has the power to call us out. That in a world where uh, a big box office draw is 50 shades of gray, judges can call us out and judge us and say, oh no, you need to wake up and you need to pay attention to this. It has our number. It knows what our problems are as people of God struggling to live and often failing to live as redeemed people in a culture that's broken. It directs us to solutions that are greater Than our heroic efforts to do it ourselves. Our own efforts to fix ourselves and everyone else. Judges undoes us. It judges us. And it throws us back into God's hands. And it calls us to look for the solution that he is going to provide. For the next seven weeks. We're going to take a look at Judges. And I'll do it through the lens of a comic book reader. And I invite you to come along with me. But I'm doing that too because I want us to be unashamed. I want us to to really grasp how powerful and real this Word of God can be. Because even though it is spoken thousands of years ago, before any comic book was ever dreamed of, before any Superman ever arrived, judges already had stories. That was amazing people, stories that were incredible, stories that were mighty and fantastic. And Judges then calls out to us and it says, do you understand what the real problems are? Do you understand what the real questions are that need to be asked? I want to just give you a few. First of all, Judges makes us think about this. What do you do when the promised land doesn't seem to be all that was promised? What do you do? What do we do when the promised land doesn't seem to be all that was promised? Judges starts with Joshua and the conquest of the land that was promised to Abraham. And after all of the struggles of getting the people out of slavery, out of Egypt, wandering through the wilderness, they finally arrived and Joshua conquers and tells them you've got to choose this day who you're going to serve and they say we'll serve god and joshua says i don't think you can do it and they say we'll still do it and they give it their best effort but judges starts out describing the problem to us and and if you if you look at at judges chapter two there's a there's a there's a brief overview there i'm going to read from the message just to get that raw, untamed nature out there. You can, you can read along too. But I ask you right now, just, just listen to this. God raised up judges who saved the people from the raiders. But they wouldn't listen to their judges... They prostituted themselves to other gods. They worshipped them. They lost no time leaving the road walked by their parents, the road of obedience to God's commands. They refused to have anything to do with it. When God was setting up judges for them, he would be right there with the judge. He would save them from their enemies' oppression as long as the judge was alive. But God was moved to compassion When he heard their groaning because of those who afflicted and beat them. But when the judge died, the people went right back to their old ways. Even worse than their parents. Running after other gods, serving and worshiping them. Stubborn as mules, they didn't drop a single evil practice. And God's anger blazed against Israel. He said, because these people have thrown out my covenant that I commanded their parents and have not listened to me, I'm not driving out one more person from the nations that Joshua left behind when he died. I'll use them to test Israel and see whether they stay on God's road or walk down it as their parents did. That's the problem with Israel. A people who have arrived in the land of promise. They have everything that's been promised to them. They have everything that they should. If they walk with God, then they'll have everything that God promises. And yet, they can't let go of the things that call out to them. The things that so attract them. They can't let go of these things and they want these things the things of the nations around them more than they want God's promises and it seems like from their perspective that God is not keeping his promises and the promised land is not all that was promised and just when they think they're going to do fine and they're, they're going to be living up God's promises. Maybe they even think that they can do it themselves and they'll be entrepreneurs of faith and they'll, they'll chart new territory and they'll, they'll do new things. They get caught up in the ways of the nations around them and they run ahead of God. And then when it all comes collapsing, they stop and ask, where are the promises of God? That, that, that's Israel. But doesn't that sound a lot like us in America? America. Doesn't that sound a lot like a people who believe that we live in a type of promised land? There's a tale that is told. A tale of a perfect America. I remember hearing stories from my father about a day and an age that doesn't exist anymore. A day and an age from his childhood. It's what he remembers. And they were stories of a kind of perfection in the world. And If you look at your history, sometimes the history that's given to us by our American traditions, there are tales of perfection. There are tales of heroism. And yet the truth is, ever since 1776, there have been flaws in this nation and among us as a people. Oh, you could say that 50, 60 years ago, things were just fine and everybody knew their place and everybody was happy. And yet there were great evils evils of segregation, evils of prejudice. And those are often overlooked in happy memories of long ago. And that's not to take away from the heroism. That's not to take away from the things that are good. Judges does not allow God's people to rest on the good. It says there is good. God is with the judges and God can deliver the people. But judges also affirms that we can be flawed as well. That even the greatest among us, even the heroes among us, can be flawed. The message of Judges is that the power is not in the promised land. The power is in the God who keeps the promises. That gives us a promised land or a promised time or a promised hope. So if God can keep his promises, Judges undoes us as we're questioning him and it asks if God can keep his promises, can we keep a promise? Because when we keep a promise, when we keep any promise, when we keep our promises to God, when we keep our covenants and our promises to one another, we're walking in his ways. And when people break those promises, that's when disaster and ruin comes along. You watch in the next seven weeks with me. The power is in the promise maker. And when people do not trust in the promise maker, in the promise making God, that's when things begin to fall apart. Watch this with me in the next seven weeks. One other question that Judges puts right before us is this. What do you do? When your deliverance doesn't seem to deliver. Now here's what I mean by that. One of the judges, Gideon, actually asked this question quite bluntly of God. And you you find his story in Judges 6 verse 7. And and let let me just read that to you. I want you to hear this dialogue between the Lord and Gideon it's rather revealing in judges six starting in verse seven god is once once again finds himself in a position where he hears the cries of his people who are asking for rescue they're asking for deliverance and by the way keep this word in mind because it comes up a lot in judges it's a it's a word that we sing a lot in our songs When we call him strong deliverer, mighty deliverer. What do we mean by that? Are we saying that God is more powerful than the post office? Are we saying that God is better than FedEx? That's how we often think of delivery. But deliverance means that God is rescuing. God is saving. We are being delivered from something evil, from some oppression. We are being relieved of it. We're being saved from it. We're being ransomed from it. And you need to keep that in mind with this word deliverance. Because Gideon here finds himself in this unique dialogue with the Lord. And God says, I am God, your God. Do not for a minute be afraid of the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But you didn't listen to me. One day, the angel of God came and sat down under the oak in Ophir that belonged to Joash, whose son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress out of the sight of the Midianites. The angel of God appeared to him and said, God is with you, O mighty warrior. Gideon replied, I beg your pardon, Lord, with me? I beg your pardon, but if God is with us, Why has all of this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our parents and grandparents told us about? Telling us, didn't God deliver us from Egypt? The fact is, God has nothing to do with us. He's turned us over to Midian. I wonder, would any of us dare ask God, where's the wonder? Like Gideon does? Here's the angel of the Lord who finds Gideon covertly harvesting wheat because he doesn't want to be seen by his oppressors. And, he's, and, and the angel of the Lord says, God is with you, mighty warrior. And he says, oh, really? Well, then why has this happened? It's probably a question that we think. It's probably a question that we as a people in our culture are wrestling with. But I think there's actually more of a problem that we don't dare to ask God. Where's the wonder? Where are the miracles? Where are the mighty acts and the mighty stories? Because if we would dare to ask that question, even if we are undone and judged by the answer of God, oh, we'll have an answer. This is Israel. And this is Israel's problem. But doesn't this sound a lot like us in America? Doesn't this sound a lot like us into church? That we've held God at arm's length. He's going to take care of us in the last day. He's going to deliver us when when we die and we have a choice between heaven and hell, and we really want God to be on our side then. We really want him to stack the 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 bet, you know, to, to stack everything in our favor. But between now and then, we're okay. We'll stay out of trouble. And maybe we need to ask more often where is the wonder? Where is the awe? Where are the miracles? Do we just believe that there's no way at all that could ever happen again? Mind you, the wonders that God will show Gideon, the things that he'll accomplish through Gideon. We're not talking about science fiction. We're talking about things that might even seem mundane. We'll, We'll look at this in the weeks ahead. But I'm asking you to consider this. Not everything, not every wonder, not every miracle of God is going to be like the ten plagues of Egypt. But can we see God's hand at work? Are we ready to claim that God is working to deliver us? Maybe what we need is more of a view of what we are being saved from and how we have been delivered. Thousands of years later... From the time of the judges, from the time of Gideon. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, a very enlightened, a very wise and scholarly and philosophical people. And he tells them that the story of the cross is not going to make sense to the world. That to Greeks it's going to seem like foolishness that a God, a powerful God, would come in human form and die. To the Jews it's not going to make sense. That, that God's Messiah would die in such a shameful, criminal matter. It will be a scandal to them. But it's going to make sense to who? He doesn't say Greeks and Jews and Christians. He says it's going to be powerful. It's going to make sense. It's going to be something that is praiseworthy to those of us who are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18 That's who we are, church. We are those who are being saved. We're not the ones who at death's moment have the card that says, get out of hell free. We're not the ones who have fire insurance and we need to check in every week and make sure that our policy is still in effect. We are being saved. We're not even the saved. We're the being saved. That means God's at work in us. That means God's doing something. Thank the Lord for Gideon who dares to ask a question because he's saying, listen, my enemy out there, it's the Midianites. They're tough stuff, Lord. And if you're going to tell me that I'm the mighty warrior and you're with me, then I need some proof. I need you to show me. But but we're jumping ahead. We'll get to the story of Gideon in the future. That was Israel. That's Gideon. But doesn't that sound a lot like us? Do we have any sense of what we have been saved from? Do we understand what it means to be delivered, to be saved, to be rescued? Maybe we're too busy trying to be rescuers all on our own that we don't experience God's deliverance first. Maybe we've made peace with the forces that oppress us and discourage us because we think that it all looks like God's work. Maybe we think it's just not right to call out God. And we don't dare wake him because he's sleeping and everything's okay. Well, let me give you some truth. God's not asleep. And God knows what he's doing. And if we want God to be with us, then we need to, be stand, we need to stand ready to expect that he will work with us. All of this points us to one of the major themes in Judges. What do you do when there is no king? Towards the end of Judges, there's a a phrase that's repeated in at least two places. Judges 17 and Judges 21. Actually, the book closes with this statement. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Because there was no king. You see, when you have a king, the king becomes the standard of what's right and wrong. The king becomes the standard of everything. Everything. A lot of the old measurements that we use are based on royalty. The foot, the yard, the, the the span. These old measurements were based on the king as the standard. And whatever the measurement was between his thumb and his pinky or his nose and his and his index finger, that was the measurement of the land. That was the rule and the standard. That's kind of silly when it comes to measurements. The king becomes the standard for many more important things in culture as well. One of the messages of the book of Judges is that even though we've got heroes, and even though God is with us, God's ultimately going to express his will through a king. There are failures when it comes to kings. The Bible is not, you know, is, does not try to gloss that over, but it tells us all the truth about Saul and David and Solomon and all the ones that follow after them. But eventually, a king is coming. One king who becomes a king forever. And Judges points us towards that. Let me ask you this. We're talking about Israel. But the phrase, everyone does what they want, or everyone does what's right in their own eyes... That's Israel. But what do you think? Does that sound like us? Does that sound like our land? Does that sound like our people? Does that sound like our world? If in our world everyone does what's right in his or her own eyes, then who rules? Don't say no one. That's not exactly the right answer. Because if everyone does what's right in his or her own eyes... Chaos rules. Because what do you do when our rightness in our own eyes comes into conflict with the rightness in other people's eyes? If you pay attention to the news, if you pay attention to what goes on in our world, a lot of it will come back to this fundamental problem, a conflict in our own judgments. And even when we As the people of God make our own judgments about what's right and wrong, we are contributing to the problem. It's not us, it's what the king determines is right and wrong. And what he calls us to is life under his rule. And the book of Judges says that when we all walk with God, guess what? He's there to deliver us, he's there to save us. He's not a tyrant, he's not a dictator. He's not not a a harsh and cruel false god. No, he's a rescuing king. He's 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 a king who fights for us against the forces that would oppress us. One difference between the day of the judges and now is that in the day of the judges, there was no king. But in 2015, there is a king. And there has been since the birth of Jesus Christ. And the message, you know, the book of Judges closes out with this statement that in those days everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes because there was no king. The last book of the Bible closes out with the message that in Jesus Christ we have the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Church, we put that stuff on banners. We write that stuff All over the place. We sing that in our songs. How many times do we sing about thrones and kings and crowns and royalty? And yet we walk away and we live and do whatever is right in our own eyes. That's why chaos rules. That's why chaos rules in our own hearts. Because we've got to live as if Jesus Christ is truly King and Lord. And judges will lead us to that. Today, we're just getting started in this. And, uh, you know, here's the thing. You don't have to understand everything about Jesus being king. You don't have to understand everything it's going to be for him to be Lord of lords and king of kings and how that's going to work out in your life. Remember, we are those who are being saved. The first thing you do when you sign up to follow a king is you bow your knees, you humble yourself, and you submit to that king, and you confess that he is Lord and God and there is no other. On behalf of the king, I'm extending to you his invitation to follow him and be saved, to follow him and be rescued, to be delivered From the stresses and the sin and the forces that oppress you to know real peace and salvation because he is mighty and powerful and can save. While we sing this song, what we're going to do is we're going to embody that invitation. We're going to sing it like that king has invited us to be. Again, I'm not inviting you to invite Jesus into your life. You don't invite kings to come to your house, okay? That's not how it works in royalty. When I was in Scotland last year, you know, I'm not going to call up Queen Elizabeth. Hey, listen, we're going on vacation. You want to join us? It's ridiculous. Rather, the royalty calls you and says, would you come and dwell with me? This is the fantastic good news that we have. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he doesn't say, he's not sitting around waiting for an invitation into your life, but he has invited you to come into his life, and that invitation stands open. So if you need to accept it, this might be a good time. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's worship the King.